good afternoon, everyone, on this weekly Sabbath. At least we can all relax now. We've got all sin out. It took seven days to do that. It'll be around next year, though, so we're going to get too wild, I guess. But it is nice to have completed God's holy days and hopefully kept the meaning of them and grown spiritually. And uh, here we start out today being the first Sabbath in the count toward Pentecost. We count seven on the next day, then of course it's Pentecost. So that's our next spiritual thing to look forward to as a an annual thing. Well, just before the Passover started, I was about to finish up the Minor Prophet series. And we got down to chapter 3 in Malachi, only got two chapters to go. Uh, might get through them today, we'll see. But uh, here he changes the direction from what the first two chapters have been. They have been a very serious indictment against particularly the ministry and also all of us as members because of what we were and... It, it sort of brings the story complete circle from Hosea, which started out with the sins of Ephraim and Ephraim, the firstborn church, and through all kinds of ups and downs, chastisement, encouragement, and so on. And then he comes back to that in the first two chapters of Malachi and shows uh, just how badly things have gone, how they've been. Then he changes direction like he often does in the prophecies. He gets back toward a positive side because all that he does to chasten us, to try to straighten us out, uh, he does with purpose, and that is that we might get our ducks lined up so that he can again bless us. And that's what he turns to here in chapter 3. There's a little more chastisement, but mostly it's a change in direction. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he sort of ends by saying, everything we say is supposed to be good, but the things we do aren't good. Just to summarize that very quickly, and he's not been happy with it. But then he says in chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. So he has reference here first to John the Baptist, uh, whom Christ said had come in the spirit of Elijah because the disciples had asked him, is Elijah coming back? And he says he'd already come in the form of John the Baptist. Uh, he was there to prepare the way for Christ, who was his physical cousin and who the two of them knew each other very well as they grew up. Their mothers were close. And I'm sure they played together as children a great deal of the time and uh, grew up knowing each other very, very well. 
And John understood that he had a responsibility to prepare the way for Christ to begin his ministry, and even to baptize him when the time came right. So those things had occurred, and this is a reference to it, although it is not a complete reference, and John the Baptist was not the last Elijah. Uh, here, it makes it very clear if you go on down in the context, uh, verse 2, who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appears. Uh, that is referring to the end time. It's not Christ's first coming as a baby. <clears throat> Nobody feared him when he was born on this earth, and Herod tried to have him killed. <clears throat> So, even though there was a type there with John the Baptist, it was not the final type, if you will. God repeats those things through scriptures where a person can do a similar work as someone who preceded them, and God ties them together in scripture and indicates that that's the same type of work that was to be done. The personalities can be quite different. I think Elijah was a very different type of personality than John the Baptist in some ways. In other ways, they may have been similar. Elijah did spend a great deal of time in the wilderness and along the creek beds and whatnot. He was not a town boy. Uh, John the Baptist had grown up in a town, but he also liked to go out in the wilderness and had uh, leather clothes and ate things off the land. So in that sense, they were similar, but I think Elijah had a more bombastic personality, perhaps, than John the Baptist did. Uh, John seemed to be more of a gentle type, and Elijah had a different type of job to do. Now, it's interesting here that he has an indictment in this book about the ministry and what was the original Elijah's, one of his main jobs was to defame, dethrone, and behead, if you will, uh, the priests of Baal. So, <coughs> his job, in part, a major part of it, was to disallow the false religion, the false doctrines, and what was going on that was wrong in the priests. And there's a great deal of that throughout the prophecies about those who are supposed to be teachers and aren't teaching the right things. And we'll see as we get on that part of the job of Elijah at the end was to restore all things because many things had fallen out that were true, were no longer believed, and some things here at the end were never even understood at all by the church. We had some things wrong, some things we'd never addressed. Didn't even know they were out there, like the Promised Land and Jerusalem and Zion and so on. We were looking at the Middle East and Petra and all that kind of thing, which is simply wrong. Not sin, we just didn't understand. And a lot we didn't. But there were a lot of problems in the ministry as well, and that has needed to be pointed out. 
I've tried to point it out in myself and in others uh, that the whole church, including the ministry, had basically become Laodicean, and we needed to repent. So that has been, through these prophecies, something that cannot be ignored. Uh, I would have had to have skipped over large sections of Scripture if we didn't make those indictments against ourselves in the ministry. It had to be done. And Christ, here in Malachi, written thousands of years ago, is talking about what's going on right now. So he said that he would send a messenger to prepare the way. Uh, a lot of things need to be straightened out, primarily us. He has to have his church ready when he comes to it, and that is taking a lot of preparation, and he's working on the church. I don't know where all that remnant is to come from. All over the world, he says, north, south, east, and west. But he is preparing those people to one degree or another. And the problem partly is that they don't understand a lot of things that God has showed us and that we are now keeping that most of the church isn't. Maybe there are some who keep Shurim, I don't know. Uh, does anybody know of any other group that keeps Shurim? There might be one or two or three out there. Uh, what about the Feast of Dedication? I don't know of any, but there might be one or two or three somewhere. They don't all put all of it together. I wonder how many groups there are that keep the, the four fasts of the months. I don't know of any, but then I'm not that familiar with all the groups. So there may be some out there that have some of these elements that they've picked up. Uh, the proper way to do the Passover for seven days, very few know about that. And even the proper order of the, of the uh, Passover. Some are still, most are still doing the foot washing first. And that always raises the question, I wonder if the preacher washed his hands after he washed somebody's feet before he broke the bread. Uh, I heard that question come up over the years quite a few times. Well, if he would have been doing it correctly, he should have had his hands washed when he got here and broke the bread first and washed feet later. That solved that problem. Just a tiny thing, but there are so many, many things that we have found in Scripture that we were neglecting, failing to do, and need to do. So these things need to be brought out. They need to be restored, among others, I'm sure. Uh, but these people who come are going to have to be brought up to speed on all these things, too. That's going to take some time and effort to, to go through all these things and to show from God's Word the things that we ought to be doing. Because it's nothing against them in that sense. They just not have been in a place where they could learn it. And most will not learn it on their own. They might learn this one or that one, but not a lot of them. 
And I don't think without God having directly showed it that I would have ever figured out where Zion and Jerusalem were in the original promised land. It was just in the Middle East, and everybody knows that, and don't question that, because everybody knows that. Well, everybody was wrong. That's all there is to it, once you get the information out there. So, he is preparing the church, preparing a people, and I like this, and I think about it often there in chapter 3, verse 1, he will suddenly come to his temple. His appearance will be quickly. Now, this is talking of the time when he comes to dwell with us, as Zechariah says, and to directly, personally oversee uh, the end time work from there forward. And that will happen when things get so dangerous that we would be killed if he didn't intervene and protect us and those who come. Now, we're not a very big target today, this little group, but we're learning. If you suddenly had seven, eight, ten thousand people show up here, uh, that would make a splash. It's something that would catch attention and something that Christ would have to intervene in order to protect because it's getting more and more to where people who even claim to be Christian on some level, are becoming more and more enemies of the state. And that will increase exponentially as we go forward. But he'll suddenly come. The messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. So we delight in Christ. We look forward to the time he comes. I can hardly wait till he gets here to direct us better than mere men can do. Uh, he'll have a direct hand in things. <clears throat> but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? Not very many. Because they don't know him. They don't know who he is. They won't know how he's coming. Now, this could be referring to both his coming to the church and even his coming in glory when the first resurrection occurs because there are elements of both here. He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Well, he needs the church to be clean, to be pure, to be as sinless as possible, to be a witness to the world of him and his way of life. So when he comes... To the church, he's going to find that we are not all exactly what we ought to be yet. And he will make sure we get refined and purified and scrubbed like a refiner's fire. Now, he doesn't really do that when he returns in glory for the first resurrection, does he? Can you say that this is how he's going to come back? No. He's going to come back, and the righteous will rise to meet him in the air and go on back to the throne of God to be married. He's not becoming as refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He doesn't do any judging. He, he doesn't do any governmental things when he returns in glory, and the trumpet sounds, and the dead are raised, and those who are alive and remain 
rise with him. He comes back to refine everybody during the millennium who is left, but not until then. So I think it's fairly clear here that he's talking about when he comes to finish refining us. We should be, it's, it's kind of like gold and, and silver, and he uses that analogy here. When you refine those precious metals, you go through more than one process. Sometimes you have to heat an ore up, depending on the ore type, two or three or four times. Uh, and you get some of the impurities out. And then you put it in the fire again and get some different impurities out until finally you get it up to 0.999 pure gold or silver. But that doesn't come easy. Now, there is gold that has been refined that's in the earth that's in nugget form that's already had a lot of heat and pressure and formed into pure gold. But most ores don't have it that pure, and they have to be refined and refined. And he mentions that several times in the scriptures. So when he comes to the church, he's going to keep refining us. He'll keep the pressure off. And like Fuller's soap, uh, you use soap to cleanse. He wants us clean. Isaiah 52, all down there toward the end of the chapter, says, be you clean who bear the vessels of the eternal. If we're to carry his vessels, if we're to represent him, he wants us clean. He doesn't want sin dwelling in our members or in our minds. So he's going to have to keep doing that. And this will be a period of time when the temple is being built, Jerusalem is being built, and he is working with, and the two witnesses are working with the church to teach them the things they need to know. And then, when the witness starts going to the world for 1260 days, those people will have been refined to the point that they can be looked to as an example of Christ for the rest of the world. So, it's not the job of two men, it's the job of the whole remnant to appear to be as much like Christ as we can possibly be. And then we can be used as an example, as a light to the world. It's a heavy responsibility on every member of the church to become as close a type of Christ as we can become. So I'll purify the sons of Levi. He's been talking here about the priesthood of the ministry being corrupt in the first two chapters, and purge them as gold and silver. So he's going to put a lot of pressure on the ministry, that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness, not an offering in lackadaisical, go-through-the-motions, self-righteousness, but in true righteousness. So I take it from this that there are going to be those who are in the ministry today in various parts of the splintered church, who will be called and who will come. No telling who. But there are some ministers out there who are truly seeking God, I think, who are seeking righteousness, 
and there are others who are just still going about their business like they were in Worldwide and doing nothing. We have no way of knowing who's who and where is where, really, but God will bring them and refine them and make them usable again. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the Eternal, as in the days of old, as in former years. And there we're adjourned to look at history and see when Israel has been obedient to God and their state, the government they had over them, and how they acted and reacted to God, and then how He blessed them. Well, there are a lot of lessons back through the whole Old Testament about the good and the bad times of Israel. And he mentions it here, that there are times back there when things were pleasant. Overall, the history of Israel has not been very good. We have been in apostasy more than we have been in obedience and fear of God, historically. But there are times back there that we can go back to and look and say, hey, let's be that way. Abraham and Sarah come immediately to mind. That was a period of time when there were at least two people who were obeying God and serving him, and that's before Israel even existed. But he had to start with someone who would be righteous. And he saw Abraham and said, that's my man. And he worked with him. And he worked with Sarah. And they had their own problems. But they were willing and able to be worked with. All of us have our problems. But I think essentially here, everyone is willing to be worked with. We're willing to listen, willing to hear. What does God say? And then we work at applying it in our lives. That's what he wants out of us. And then when we bring our offering, what is our offering? Well, it can be monetary, and he does tell us to, to do those things. But our offering, in a spiritual sense, is even more important. Our prayers, our thoughts, our songs, given to God. And they become a sweet savor to his nose and to his mouth, instead of stench. And that's what he was getting before, and it made him puke. Now, he wants us to be changing and overcoming and growing so that when we pray and sing, that's an aroma to him. Ah, I like to hear the prayers of righteous people. That's why he says the prayer of a righteous man avails much with God. There aren't many of those, understand. When he looks down at eight and a half billion people, how many really understand who he is, what he's doing, why he's doing it, even the purpose of man? A very few thousand, and of them only an even fewer thousand who are really trying to put it into practice. So he sees a lot of sin and smells a lot of stench from his throne looking down at the earth. And as it goes round and round, that's all paraded before him every day. That must get tiresome. So how sweet it must be when he hears somebody 
that gives him glory and praise and honor and sings songs to him, that's got to be music to his ears to hear that. And I think we need to understand that. We look at the correction in the Bible, we look at what God wants us to be, and we realize we fall short, far short of it. But at the same time, we need to recognize that he is truly working with us, each and every one of us, and he loves our prayers. If they are done in righteousness instead of self-righteousness, he loves them. They're a sweet thing to him out of all this stench down here. You've probably experienced that at times when everybody around you is in a nasty, rotten, bad attitude. The, the company you worked for, the school class you were in, the family you were part of, or whatever. And it's hard to find a good attitude. Somebody that was happy and smiling and so on, because everybody's just not in a good mood, not in a good attitude. But boy, you see somebody smiling and it picks you up. That's that way. He is a very emotional being. Very emotional. He and the son both. They have very deep emotions of both positive and negative. And they don't like the negative. They've lived with that with Satan way too long. And they are just waiting to put him away so that they can begin to do a good work without his interference. And to them, it's not a long time. The day is, is a thousand years, so this isn't long. But I don't know how long it was before he started over with man that Satan rebelled. That could have been millions, billions of years. Who knows? He hasn't said when that rebellion occurred. But he's been living with the results of it, and one-third of the angels, angry and nasty, vindictive, vengeful, and still wanting to take over his throne. That must get tiresome. And then when he looks at the influence of Satan on all of us on this earth, that has to get tiresome too. And I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth. It got tiresome in Noah's day. He said, man... I think I'll just wipe them out. Be done with it. Forget that. No, no, I, he's doing pretty good. He, his compassion, his love overrode that feeling of, oh, just, let's just get this over with. And it's happening again right now, where he looks at the world and he says, the violence, the hate, the sin is so bad that I can hardly stand it. Well, wait a minute. There's a few down there who are really striving to serve me and love me. I can't just wipe them all out. But you know, he's this close to it. He even says in one place, uh, and it might be in this book, yeah, it is. Last verse. <laughs> we'll get there. But he says if the things that he's talking about in these last two chapters don't happen, 
he will smite the earth with the curse that is wiped it all out. Something good has to come out of it, or else God just says, Hey, I'm I'm just done. I'm sorry. He wants to live in peace and security and happiness through all eternity with you and me in peace and security and happiness for all eternity. That's how he wants to live. And he has to do some things in order to accomplish that. One is bind Satan, and the other is, just before that, wipe out over 90% of humanity. Daniel says maybe 100 million is the number that will survive to go into the millennium out of 8.5 billion. Not very many, but without Satan and without the culture of this world around, he is going to straighten things out, and the millennium is going to be a wonderful, peaceable time. And we'll be there helping him rule, helping him get his children that remain in line and in order and respectful and loving and obedient. What a wonderful time that will be. And we can share in it. So we need to be listening to what he says right here. He's pointing to a better time in verse 4. Verse 5, And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right to do, and fear not me, says the Eternal of hosts. Now here he's telling us what Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount. If we will be kind and forgiving and loving and obedient, then he will bless us. If he won't, he won't forgive us and he won't bless us. So here he says the same thing. He'll be a swift witness against those. Now only 10% of the church are going to come and be teachable and loving and kind and submissive and humble and meek and poor in spirit. 90% are going to be left and he's not giving up on them. I think Zechariah is referring to that when he says a third of those that go into the fire will repent. So, he's talking here, not only of refining the church, but as he works with the church, you're going to have those others that are out there in the tribulation. And he's going to be working through pressure to bring them to repentance. And hopefully... Many of them will. And realize, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't repent before. It's time to get her done right now because they're about to kill me. And I think they will, most of them, if not all of them, die as martyrs. But they will have to have put God first. And the very fact that they're martyred shows that they're going to serve God instead of the beast and false prophet. Because they have to make that decision. Either take the mark so you can buy and sell and be part of our society, or off with your head. It's just how it's going to be. But God says, I'm not going to just set my law aside and let you do anything you want and then make you part, make you part of my kingdom. No way. 
I'll be a swift witness against anybody who's doing the things that he names there. For I am the eternal. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now there he's telling us that he has feelings that would cause him to consume us. But because his mercy endures forever, and that's what he is internally, he's not consuming us all. It's not that we don't deserve it. He's just not doing it because he's merciful. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Eternal of hosts. So this is kind of the final warning shot uh, of the minor prophets. But you said, wherein shall we return? That's the attitude that he describes there in Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church. What's wrong with us? We're doing okay. We're keeping the Sabbath. We're keeping the feast. We're doing the things you say for us to do. What's wrong with us? And he looks and he says, you're blind. You can't see. You don't know what's wrong. You're not worshiping with all your heart. Here I am, the God of all the universe, the sovereign who created it all, who made you, formed you, gave you life, gave you opportunity to live forever in the kingdom of God, and you treat me like I'm hardly here. You're paying more attention to the things of this life than you are to me. And that's the challenge, is pay more attention to him than the things of this life. The things of this life need attention, they need taken care of, we need to earn a living, we need to grow food, we need to do the things that are required to live as a human being. But at the same time, we need to be sure that we're paying more attention to him than we are to these things. Because if we're not paying attention to him, these things down here are harder. We have to work harder at it. But if we give him the attention, and then he blesses us, that makes these even physical blessings down here, and the physical things we have to do, easier to do. Things go better when you're serving God than when you're not. Look at the church. We weren't serving him properly, and things didn't go so well. Now we're trying to turn a leaf over and recognize him and worship him above everything, and then things will start going better. That's what all the prophecies say. So he's summarizing that here. Return to me, and I will return to you. And yet we say, well, how do we return? What do we need to do? Well, he's already given us a long list in verse 5 of things we need to not do or do. So he says, okay, you ask for a, a reason, I'll give you one, and he picks out money. That's one of the biggest issues with human beings is money. Uh, 
What are the biggest issues? I suppose life, sex, and money. Uh, life, I say sex because it is such a uh, worldwide issue, but procreation is involved with it in marriage. So we want to live, and then we want to live through our children and our grandchildren. So sex and marriage is probably the second biggest drive. Sometimes money goes above it with some people. I mean, they kind of go back and forth. But those are the biggest drives and forces uh, the people have. Their first is to live, and they'll kill in order to get food, and you'll see that soon. So he picks out money and discusses it. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? What do you mean we've robbed you? How did we rob you? He says, in tithes and offerings. Jonah Koss decided that tithes and tithes were not necessary. He thought offerings would do the job. And the income plummeted as we've gone over several times. But he says, okay, we'll go there. That's difficult for people to give God 10% of what they earn. That is a test commandment in itself. And God is equating it here to being in his kingdom. It is that important to him. He could have used any example he could have chosen many things here, but he picked that one out because it is something a lot of people have difficulty with. You were cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even the whole nation, not just the church. The church has taught tithing, and many people in the church have kept tithing. If they're not, they're in jeopardy with God and not being in his kingdom. Because that's one of the physical things he has us do to show where our heart is. He made it very clear in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you can't serve God and money. You have to put one above the other. And mankind as a whole has put money above God. The whole society and culture of the entire world has put money ahead of God. So God says, that's one of your gods. That's your idol. You put money ahead of me. Therefore, I want you to show me that you're going to put me ahead of money. That's one of the spiritual lessons we have to learn. And if we're not tithing, then if we're in a position to, uh, on our increase, then God is not happy. And I think there's another reason that he uses this example. Since you've cursed me, you're cursed with a curse, you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Well, that's coming to fruition in our nation today. We have abandoned God. The churches are getting more and more empty all the time. And a little lip service, but the generations that are coming up right now have very little regard for God. Well, what's happened to us? Now we are the biggest debtor nation on earth. 
We owe more money to more people than anybody anywhere. Now that is a curse. He told us if we did not obey him and serve him and put him first, we would quit being the head and become the tail. Now we're the tail. And the nations that we have abused and misused are about to gather together and destroy us. It's going to happen. God says, don't even pray for this nation. They're not going to repent. It won't do you any good. Forget it. I'm going to punish them. So he says, you robbed me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now with, herewith, says the eternal opposed, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So he's telling the church, because the nation isn't listening, period. So the only ones that have a chance to respond properly to this is the church. So that we make sure we're taking care of our financial obligations to God. Now, why is he calling a 10% remnant to do his work? Why isn't it 15% or 34%? Why is it 10%? Because God, way back, said 10% is mine. So, the nation has not been tithing physically, and they've not been serving him in any way spiritually, and the church has drifted away from taking care of their financial obligations. So he said, I'm going to have my tithe of people. His tithe of people is more important to him than the tithe of money. I will have my 10%. You all went into Laodiceanism. I'm going to call 10% out, and I'm going to show them my ways. And then I will bless them in ways that they haven't comprehended before. And you go back through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets, and you'll find that he talks about the desert blooming as a rose and the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, and the lame walking, and all those things he's going to do with the end-time church once he gets them together. That's how he's going to get their attention, is with signs and wonders. Then they're going to come, and he will begin to bless them, because they are the tenth coming back to God. And when he gets his ten percent, blessing comes forth. And that is a lesson we learn spiritually from tithing physically. If we give God that which he requires of us, then he blesses us. And he will pour out that blessing. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the fields, does the eternal of hosts. So he has told us in other places that he is going to be a wall of fire around his remnant people. It cannot be touched, and he's going to bless them with productivity and lots of cattle and lots of things growing that are good to eat. 
and devourer cannot come and destroy it. So we're still, we're not talking millennium here. We're still talking here on this earth with those who obey him and bring their tithes and offerings, and he will bless them. Because the devourer is still around in this context. But he won't be allowed to those who are obeying God. And all people shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, says the Eternal. That doesn't mean they're going to do what God says. That doesn't mean they're going to come and partake of righteousness and have those blessings. They're just going to look and say, wow, those people have plenty to eat. They don't just get so much on their, put in their account in their hand every month just to barely eat, they're blessed. Wow. But here again, the old saw, they like the result, they don't like the method. They're not going to give to God what he asks for, and therefore they won't be blessed. But they'll call you that. Now this is still before the millennium, while the devourer is still around. Your words have been stout against me, says the Eternal. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? He didn't do things when we wanted him to. Uh, sometimes we weren't healed when we thought we should be. So we've had an attitude about him. I've even seen this thing of tithing where somebody will say, well, I read that and I tithed. They didn't say how long, three months, a year, whatever. But I tithed, and the windows of heaven didn't open up and bless me. So then they've got an attitude toward God for writing this when they didn't get what they wanted when they wanted it. See, the attitude is totally wrong. Totally wrong attitude. The thing is, we should love God enough that if he says, tithe, then we say, okay, and we do it cheerfully because we're man and he's God. And he gave us everything we've got. What's the big deal to give him 10% back? The people get an attitude about it if they don't suddenly have lots of blessings. Well, they're taking this out of context for one thing. Now, as a general principle, if we obey God and tithe, He's going to bless us. But here he's talking about a particular time in history, or prophecy, right now, where he's saying, I want my tithe, physically and of my people. And when they come and they have the right attitude, then I will bless them. So this is a specific prophecy of a specific time, even though it applies at other times in a lot of ways. I've heard many, many people attest that when third tithe year came around, they had blessings that they didn't get at other times of the year. Uh, somebody give them a car when theirs was about to quit, or things they get a better job, or or get a job, or whatever. Or a relative would give them something, or a relative would die and give them something, or a lot of different ways that they didn't expect, and they didn't know how they were going to make it. 
when they're paying that extra tithe, that cut into their budget. How are we going to do this? And yet, if they obeyed God, somehow they made it through the year, and a lot of times better than they had the year before when God wasn't giving special attention. You've probably heard stories like that. You may have experienced some of them. God's word is inviolate, and his promises are true. So, we sometimes don't give God credit, and we don't trust him. That's what it boils down to, is we don't have faith, that is, trust, that everything's going to turn out right if we do what we're supposed to do. We've got to be convinced of that. Things will be better if I obey every part of God's word. But we struggle with it. You have said it is vain to serve God. He's up there. He doesn't answer. He doesn't fix things. I think the whole church has been kind of in that mood and attitude for over 30 years now. We keep trying to serve God. We keep trying to do the work, and nothing happens. He's just, he's not paying any attention to us. There's a lot of that. What good does it do to serve God? What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the eternal of hosts? He hasn't blessed us. He hasn't fixed us. He hasn't fixed the church. He hasn't done this. He hasn't done that. He will when the time is right. Habakkuk went through some of this. Remember that story? How long, O Lord? How long does this go on? I'm getting frustrated. You don't seem to listen to me. You're not doing anything. How about it? Of course, Habakkuk was writing a prophecy that was to apply 3,000 years later. (laughs) It didn't have much to do with him, really. But he still had an attitude there. And he finally got over it and said, Okay, I'm beginning to get it. If I just sit on my watch and do what I'm supposed to do, God will take care of me. He relaxed, he surrendered, he submitted, and quit whining and complaining. Let go and let God, to use an expression. That's what he did. And then the book ended with him saying, I know God's going to take care of things. So he had, instead of an attitude of mistrust and doubt, he changed it to one of, God knows what he's doing, everything's going to be all right. And that's where we need to come to in our relationship with God. He's either there or he isn't. His promises are either true or they're not. Now, I'm betting that they're true. And I'm doing everything I can to believe him and trust him and wait for him rather than faunching at the bit and saying, well, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? Well, he's the God of the universe and he sees and knows everything and I'm a little pipsqueak of a human being who doesn't see much and know much. All I know is what I read here. And that's all I need to know. And in here, he tells me also what's the world around you, what's going on, and when you see the leaves coming on the tree, you'll know the time is near. So we know the time is near, but it doesn't do any good to fight it either, does it? Just wait and see. 
what God does when he does it, and trust him and know he's going to get it done. He's going to heal. He's going to help. He's going to do all the things he says he does. Now, and now we call the proud happy. Yea, they uh, that work wickedness are set up. Yes, they that tempt God are even delivered. So the whole attitude of the nation and the world is, God doesn't matter. What good's God going to do you? And that has bled over into the church a great deal. Well, we'll go through the motions, but uh, nothing ever comes of it. Well, it will. Just hang in there. It will. Now, he says he makes a comment about that. Verse 16. Then they that feared the eternal spoke often one to another, and the eternal hearkened and heard it. So those who get out of the spirit of apathy and lackadaisical approach and approach God with love and fear and zeal, he's going to pay attention to. He hears that. That's music to his ears. They talked about these things. They were trying to live these things. He hearkened to them and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the eternal and that thought upon his name. So he's, he's having it scribes write it down. Those that remember him and that are fearful of his name. That's not lost. It's, it's in the record. And they shall be mine, says the eternal of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. So we know, Revelation 2 and 3, he's going to give the righteous a crown of life. He mentions it in, one more place, in more places than that through the Bible. But he looks upon us as crown jewels. And he's going to remember those who hearkened and spoke to one another and worked together and sharpened one another and strengthened one another by example, by word, however we go about it, those he'll remember. And he's going to take care of them and give, make them crowns and put jewels in them. Because we're going to be kings and priests in his kingdom, and we'll have crowns. So this is still premillennial. It's still pre-Christ returning and raising up the dead, because he's talking about doing this ahead of that. So he's working on it right now. And he's, he's judging you and me. And he's deciding whether to fit a crown on us. And maybe he's already decided that. And now he's deciding how many jewels to give in our crown. I don't know where he is with each of us. But this is the process he says he's going to go through. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. Right now, hard to know. But when he starts blessing, and then when he immortalizes some, you're going to know the difference. We're going to know the difference ahead of time. 
when all these peoples or nations call you blessed. And you're in a delightsome land being blessed. That'll begin that separation. And then people will know. You know, people buy drive by out here on Highway 389. Do they know the difference between a regular cane beds person and you and me? Nah. They don't see the difference, don't know us. The conditions are going to come if we will serve where the whole world is going to know who's serving God and he's making a difference. Exciting times right ahead. <clears throat> then he says, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble, and the day comes that shall burn them up, says the Eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So he says, Those who fear me, I'll bless, I'll take care of them, they'll become delightsome, but this time of great trouble is coming, and it's almost upon us now. And eight and a half billion people essentially are going to die, with just a few left. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. The calf of the stall is one that is in the barnyard, that is hand-fed, that is taken care of, has shelter from the wind and the rain and the storm and the dust. He's not just out in the wilderness somewhere trying to make a living off of cactus. A stalled heifer or calf is one that is taken care of by the owner very carefully. And he says those who obey him are going to be in that category. He will look after them. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. So he's winding up the culture of this world, destroying the wicked, and they'll come up in the second resurrection and have their chance at salvation. But he's going to start with a small number in the millennium to get things back on track, to make things the way they should be and will be. And if we are righteous and we have the crowns or we're in the kingdom of God ourselves and we walk the earth, the wicked will be ashes under the feet. All that will be left of the culture of this world is ashes. That's it. Nothing more. Then he gives us some admonition here and some instruction. Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb, Mount Sinai, all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Now, this is a parting shot to the church from the Old Testament to remember his laws, to remember what Moses did. Now, we know there have been some changes in terms of the sacrifices. Christ became the sacrifice instead of bulls and goats being the sacrifice. But the principles and the law were still there. It does say in the Old Testament 
you shall love the eternal your God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. It's in the Old Testament. That's not died. That's not dead. It's not gone away. It's still there. Remember the law. And Christ remembered it in his ministry and said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to live it, fulfill it. Not put it away, but fulfill it. Love each other and love me above it. And then he gives us uh, some insight as to what he will do. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, this isn't referring to his first coming where John the Baptist prepared the way and was a type of Elijah in that way. But this is at the end when Moses and Elijah, who are listed as the two prophets, the two witnesses, will go forth with the law of God. That's what he's reminding us of here. The law of God will be taught. And the Elijah the prophet who stirred things up. And those two are going to witness to the world about the law and the way of God. And they're going to bring fire down from heaven. And they're going to stand up against the nations of the world. And the nations of the world cannot do anything about them until the last three and a half days. So God is going to send Elijah again with power. You go back to the Old Testament and you see how the original Elijah killed the priests of Baal. Took their heads off. And whether that's done physically here at the end or whether it is a spiritual meaning, it's going to be done. False religion is going to be made to appear as it is, false and wrong. And God's way will be taught very strongly, very powerfully. And he says that's before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So that's the end time. The last fulfillment of Elijah and Moses types. Not only that, will he come, but he'll turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with, it should say, the curse. If something isn't done, Something isn't preached. Something isn't straightened out. I'll wipe it out. <laughs> Just like I did in Noah's day. Only maybe totally. So this has to be. Let me give you just one little. Go back to Zechariah 10. Verse 7. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. That's what he's talking about here. Elijah became a mighty man. <clears throat> and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. The happiness, the joy that you can have with having a few drinks together and laughing and joking and just having merriment, joy. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the eternal. So, what is 
preached, what is said, what is done, and the blessings of the former and latter reign of chapter 10 are going to be seen by our children, and they're going to be impressed with it. So that's just one right there that shows you that through obedience to God, if we do our part and then God blesses us, that will cause people to turn their hearts to God, to turn their hearts to Moses and Elijah and the other forefathers, to turn their hearts to their physical fathers. Three levels of father-son that have to be accomplished. And this is the time, just before the great and deadful day of the Lord, that this needs to be done. But all of these prophecies we've been reading are going to start to come to pass. And then that will impress the physical children. You know, dad and mom are right. And then they'll see, oh, those are the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now they're coming true. That'll turn their hearts to their forefathers. And then at the same time, as they see blessing, they'll recognize it comes from God, and it'll turn their heart to God. So on three levels. If the truth is taught, it is followed, and God blesses, as he says he will, those who will obey, then people are going to start turning to God, and that will prevent him from wiping us out. We have a huge responsibility, brethren, to turn the hearts of the children to the physical father, the forefathers, and the father. It's not just a job of one man. It is a work that is worked. It wasn't just the apostles in the early New Testament church, was it? No, they preached, they taught, they helped. But it was a work that involved thousands of people because they formed the body of Christ, the church. And it is the whole body that is going to be part of the kingdom of God, not just James, Peter, John, and Jude, and those twelve guys. No, they will be over the different tribes. But the tribes will include altogether 144,000. So it wasn't just the work of John or Paul or James. It wasn't just the work of Herbert Armstrong or one or two more. It was a whole work that was done to choose a lot of people out of the world and give them opportunity to obey. And now, out of all those that were called, 10% are being chosen to come and do this work that we're talking about. And if we know about it, then we have to go do it. There are a lot of people who don't know the things that you know. And if they don't know them, they certainly can't do them. Only the ones who know them can do them. We're not here to try to make prophecy happen. Prophecy is going to happen. We're just here to fulfill the part of the prophecy that God lays on us. Now, that may not be to preach the gospel. That might not be to do certain things. 
everybody doesn't have all the same gifts to do the same things. But what we have to do and obey and keep is his instruction on what righteousness is. And if we please him in righteousness, then we're automatically going to be included. You don't play politics to get in. You serve God with humility and love and thankfulness, and you'll be in. It's just that simple. So that's what he's saying here. We have to have a people at the end who can be used as examples to the world of people who've turned to God and they've been blessed. That's what he's after. That's why he's calling a faithful remnant, so that they can be used for that purpose. The, the, the two witnesses would be somewhat handcuffed if they didn't have a people to point to to say, look, you're obeying Satan and you're being killed, put into slavery. Here's some people who are serving God and they have grass up to the waist of their animals and their grapes are this big. And everything is going well for them, as he says up here before this. That's used as a witness against the world. You've got to have something to witness with. And God's going to call 10% of what was the church to straighten up and become that witness. And he called a few of us, I think, ahead of time to prepare away uh, a place the people might come. And he showed us where the promised land is. He showed us where Zion and Jerusalem are. We're not big enough to be a witness to the world. We're not it. But those people are coming. And that will make a ripple. And not only are they coming... They're coming, and hopefully we'll be a good example and a witness to them. I've seen people come into God's church and over the years, I mean, back in the worldwide, even decades ago, and they're all new, and they've got all this new knowledge. They've been reading these booklets and listening and reading the plain truth and all this stuff, and, oh, it's just so exciting to them. And they know they've found the truth, and it, it, their heart is bursting with the new knowledge that they've received, but they might learn who God is. Oh, they get excited. And then they come to church, and they expect everyone to be a paragon of Christ. They expect everybody to be perfect. And then, rah-roh, <laughs> they see problems. They see attitudes. They see all kinds of things. They think, maybe this ain't it after all, because they don't find perfection. And then if they hang around... They learn that none of us are perfect, that nowhere in here does it say anybody will be, but that we're all working toward that. And then they can get in line and work toward it themselves and realize we're all in this together. So then we have a more realistic view that, yes, this is the truth. And everybody's trying to live the truth, but we all fall short, ask for God's mercy, his forgiveness, his help, that he'll make us a crown if we will be in fear of him and serve him and do the things 
that he says here in Malachi 3. Take care of the widow and the fatherless and the orphan. Don't lie and cheat and steal and adulterate and all these things that human beings want to do, like to do. Don't go there. Go here. And then he'll bless us. And everything's going to turn out good. So don't question him. Don't doubt him. Trust him. Believe him. You might not can trust men, but if you can't trust God, we are of all men most miserable. We're working and striving to be something that even if we achieve it fairly well, if God doesn't keep his promises, it was all in vain. We could have been relaxing and doing other stuff that was fun for us and not having to struggle and fight against human nature and Satan to go God's way when everyone else is. Why fight that fight if there's no reward at the end? We better believe God when he says, if we do this, it will happen. And that gives you, if you really believe it, it gives you motivation to do what you need to do. If you don't really believe it, well, maybe, maybe. You better believe God is working in you his salvation. And pray for it. Work your salvation in me. I can't save myself. You have to do it. He is the one who gives salvation. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. It's a gift. Because no matter how hard you work at it, you'll fall short of the law of God. That's what we are. Therefore, trust Him through His Spirit to work through us and get the job done. Now, if you can't trust Him to do that, you don't, but just half believe it, you're not as motivated. You're not as strong. That's why faith is so important. Just trust God to get the job done and yield to him the best you can and trust that he can get the job done. He wouldn't have called you if he didn't think he could get it done in you. Now you just got to believe him and do your part, and it'll happen. Okay?